Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Sheila Heen. She's the deputy director of the Harvard Negotiation Project and the author of best-selling books, Difficult Conversations, and thanks for the feedback. Sheila, welcome to World of DAS. I am delighted to be here. It's good to see you. Thank you. Now, I'm a huge fan. And before we start, I just want listeners to know that Difficult Conversations is really one of my favorite books. I recommend it to every SafeGraph employee. Why do you think that book has had such an effect on people? <laughs> well, it's funny, Oren, because we had a big debate amongst ourselves about the name of the book because we got a bunch of feedback from colleagues saying Difficult Conversations as the title of the book is a really negative title. Don't you think oh, you should have yeah. a positive title? Like maybe like call Overcoming it Difficult Conversations. Overcoming <laughs> or having learning conversations. So we kind of went around and around and eventually settled on the idea that we got to meet people where they're at. And this is where we're all at. We walk by the airport bookstore and see it and go like, oh, yes, I'm on my way to have some of those. <laughs> so It's funny to me now that we even considered calling it anything else, because Doug likes to say, if someone's drowning in the ocean, you can't be the lifeguard shouting instructions from the shore. You've got to actually swim out to meet them where they're at in the struggle. And I think that's a big piece of the philosophy. I like that. I really like that. Now, how do you navigate a conversation with somebody who maybe isn't interested in fairness or openness? For some of us, that might be a non-starter. Say, hey, if they're not going to want to be open, we don't want to talk to them. But I imagine that's a pretty common situation. So how do we make those situations work? Did you want to name any names? (laughs) (laughs) People we all have in mind. Relatives. (laughs) Exactly. I think that one of the things that has become more and more obvious to me over the last couple decades is that if someone is not interested or seems to me not to be interested in openness or fairness, the question I have to ask myself is why? Are they not interested in being open because they think it's going to be used against them? Because something has happened between us that has made them not trust me this time around. Like it was confidential, but in fact, I mentioned it to someone do they not feel really ready in the working relationship or personal relationship to be that vulnerable? And what's their history with being vulnerable, not just with me, but with anybody? And if they're not interested in fairness, is it because they think that the standards for fairness really are screwy in this situation? Because what the industry standard says is not actually what's fair for how to think about what this is worth. And so I think that's the conversation to have, which is like, hey, it seems to me that this isn't where you're at. Talk to me. Why? Because I find that a little bit unusual, but there's got to be a good reason. Okay. So somehow like getting to the reason and how do you do that? Like, is it just asking them open-ended questions or how do you get to the reason? I think that they have to believe that you're actually open yourself. One of the strongest results, outcomes in the research is reciprocity. So if I attack you, you're going to attack me back. That's the mirror reaction that we all have. So if I actually want you to be willing to be open, I actually have to be open. It's more likely to invite you to reciprocate. So I think I have to demonstrate to you that I'm willing to say what's in my internal voice. I'm not sure whether I should say that might make me a little bit vulnerable or admit I don't have any answers and maybe there isn't a conversation to be had here, or maybe there isn't a deal to be done. I'm a little stuck because I've run through the things that I think might move us forward and they don't seem to be helping. And in fact, they seem to be only irritating you. What do you think I don't get about what's going on here? And if I can say, I don't have all the answers and I need to be educated, I'm offering them a role, like educate me. And that's a role that they're more likely to take than, can you explain to me what's wrong with you for why you don't cooperate (laughs) with me? Because I am so good at this and this is in your best interest and you just don't understand it. They're not going to say yes to that role. It's like, hi, I'm putting on a play. Would you like to be cast as either the villain, the problem, or the idiot? Nobody's going to take that role. Now, in your book, you say that every difficult conversation is really three conversations. What are they? And what are these conversations look like, let's say, in a business context? So I think that was the biggest aha for me, which is that we figured there were probably, 
I don't know, three or five or 10 types of conversations. Conversations upward in a hierarchy would be different than a conversation with your parent, although maybe not, depends on the parent relationship. But actually what we found is that every, if you look at what people are thinking and feeling during these conversations, if you look into what we call their internal voice, that there actually is a very consistent structure and there are very predictable things that we're all preoccupied with in conflict with other people or in a difficult conversation. So the three layers of the conversation are what we call the what happened conversation. Like I have a story in my head about what has happened and what's happening right now and what should happen. And that story actually also has three subcomponents. It includes what I'm right about. (laughs) That's an important part of it for me. It includes whose fault it is that we're in this situation or that this isn't working. And then it includes what I think your intentions or motivations are. Like, why are you acting this way? It also includes my own explanations for what my intentions or motivations are, which are usually much better than yours. (laughs) Those are like the three key components that make up the story of what's happening that I'm telling. But underneath that top layer, which is often what we're debating, there are two more things going on. The middle, the second thing is we're each often having emotional reactions, sometimes strong emotional reactions to what's happening, even if it's just anxiety or awkwardness or fear or guilt or confusion. And I'm trying to figure out, especially in a business context, like what do I do with those feelings? Because I think I'm not really supposed to be emotional at work. So shoot, what now? And how do I deal with yours, your emotions? And then the fun at the deepest level is what we call the identity conversation. If a conversation feels difficult, chances are there's something it suggests about me that feels like it's at stake. Like I can't get this deal done, or maybe I'm not as good a manager or a leader as I thought I was here, or maybe I've neglected this person or treated them unfairly. And we all carry around with us core pieces of the story we tell identity-wise about who we are or who we want to be. And difficult conversations often happen right where those stories are maybe in question. And so part of getting better at these conversations is thinking about, okay, what's going on at each of these levels for me and often also for the other person. And for the first one, the what's happening one, which is really in some ways like a set of facts is is the goal to like get to some sort of maybe not a shared truth, but at least understanding both sides of like, okay, how do you think what happened happened? And how do I think what happened happened? And even in crimes, you witnesses have very different totally realities and different memories of an actual truth. Yes. So I think that's really, you've hit upon one of the key shifts to make, which is I have to negotiate with myself actually first from, I need to get them to see the things I'm right about or that I'm right, or this is what really happened. And I need to shift from that's my purpose in this conversation to actually my purpose in this conversation is to understand why we see it so differently. And Eyewitness accounts are partly what data or data. How do you say that word in your world? <laughs> I say data, but some people data. say data. Okay, we're going with data. <laughs> All right, I like it. Too bad for the rest of because we're right about how to pronounce this word. Okay, I like it. <laughs> Eyewitness accounts are a great analogy because what you can see from where you sit in an organization or in the world is different than what somebody else can see. And so they have an angle on things and they have information that I don't have, but also we're each interpreting information differently. So it's not, what did our contract say? We could look that up, but it's, what did our contract mean? What did we expect of each other when circumstances changed? And do I feel fairly treated there? Sometimes I'm having a conversation with somebody and I'll think someone said something. I'll be confident that they said X. Totally. And then I'll say, hey, I heard you say X. And I'll say, I never said X. Or opposite, they'll think I said something and they'll say, hey, I thought you said Y. And I said, I never said that. I'm sure I never said that. And like we were both there. It was just us in the room. And it may have been like 10 minutes ago or even like one minute ago that we had this conversation, but like somehow we've like completely had a different view of what was said. And of course, we're not like taping the conversation, so we can't rewind it and go back. So how do we deal with like these things that seem to happen all the time? All the time. It's partly because memory is so quickly fallible 
there's a terrific book called The Seven Sins of Memory by Daniel Schachter. And he talks about the things that we mix up very quickly. For instance, chronology. No, 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 no. You didn't say that. I said this first. And then you said that. (laughs) So like who started it (laughs) is part of it. The other thing is that when emotion gets involved, like your brain slows down and you're much more likely to remember how you felt treated rather than the specific facts. And so you take away an impression of how you felt treated. And then you also take away what I thought you meant when you said that. So you, I would say, no, 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 you said X. And you're like, I definitely did not say X because you're thinking to yourself, I would never say X because that X is not what I meant. But X might be my interpretation of what you actually said, which actually wasn't even that close to what you meant. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're like triangulating in on the truth and we each feel really motivated to be right about what actually happened because it's part of our identity. Like, no, 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 I'm in touch with reality. You are not. Interesting. So then we have a debate about it when, in fact, it doesn't matter who wins that debate. The question is like, can we just clarify what you think you said or at least what you meant and what I thought you meant and why does this matter now? That's maybe the more important question for us to talk about. One of the things that I've been doing in those situations is like, if I think someone said something and they say they didn't say it, I think like the easiest way is just to assume they're right or just kind of like leave it. At least I felt like there's no sense having a debate about it because you're never going to come to the answer unless you have it on tape. And even if you have it on tape, what they said may have been ambiguous in terms of what they meant. So you could interpret it in either direction, the direction they're now debating and you understood. I agree with you. You're not going to win that argument. There might be something still to talk about, which is like, so that's really interesting because the fact that you said it meant that I actually assumed a couple of other things. So let's talk about those other things. Like, why is it important? Why is it coming up again now? That still might be worth exploring. Interesting. Barry Nailbuff was on the World of Jazz podcast, and he mentioned research that basically suggests that when people feel like they're being treated unfairly, they basically reject a deal, even if it's in their best interests. How do we keep discussions flowing when a party feels they're treated unfairly? Because that does happen all the time. It does happen all the time. And talk to me about a time when you have been in that moment, feeling treated unfairly. And what did you want from the other person? Well, you can see a scenario where somebody agrees to a deal and they come back with a less good deal for you. And that happens. And maybe the power shifted in the relationship. Now they have more opportunities to come back. Maybe the market has changed or something and the economy has slowed down. You can see all these different things that could happen. And you have these emotions because, well, okay, we agreed to this thing. You may even have like the video call of them agreeing. They may even agree that they agreed, though they may not always want to do that. But now it's like, okay, now we're moving the goalposts a bit. In a way that feels illegitimate and not mutually agreed upon or collaborative. So one of the things that we talk about when we teach negotiation is that every negotiation, you can think of it as a Venn diagram. So you've got the substance of what are the terms we're going to agree to. And then you've got an overlapping circle that is the process. How are we going to get there? And then the last concentric circle overlapping those two is the relationship. So if I'm feeling treated unfairly, I might be feeling treated unfairly in one or more of those circles. So you might say, look, the substantive outcome is still fair to you. And I might say, yeah, but the process sucks. We agreed to these terms. So I'm actually in this conversation right now. Did you know that, Orin? I'm in this conversation (laughs) with procurement. Need I say more? And we went back and forth and back and forth for two weeks. We finally worked out and settled on terms. Great. Signed that piece of it. And then I am told that the next step of the process is the master agreement and it's not negotiable. And the master agreement... (laughs) The master agreement automatically gives them a whole bunch of discounts immediately. (laughs) And it's not negotiable. It's like, we already negotiated over these terms. So that is actually closed. And this process does not feel transparent and it doesn't feel fair. And now that trips how I feel treated in the relationship also, because you keep casting this as a partnership. And if this is a partnership, this is not how I expect to be treated as a partner. So now I'm thinking to myself, do we really need this business? It's probably a couple million bucks. 
but do I need this aggravation? I can imagine a scenario where like, okay, if they treated me like this, when things get crazy or whatever, I don't know if I could count on it or they might withhold the billing for a while or et cetera. And when a relationship starts to fray, when it's in trouble or there's friction, things start to be symbolic. Oh, of course you would do that because this is how it's going to be with you. This is how you are. Then it starts to trip my identity. Like, am I going to let somebody treat me this way? Am I going to be walked on? So one of the things that we talk about is a good yes and a good no, or a bad yes and a bad no. So in frustration, sometimes people will walk away from a deal that people on the outside are like, yeah, but the substance of that deal was so much better for you than your BATNA, your best alternative to not doing this deal. I might say, yeah, but actually when I factor in my relationship interests and my predictions about the future, this was actually a great decision because that's actually worth something to me to not feel taken advantage of or to not have the next couple of years of similar treatment. And so it's not necessarily a bad no, but I usually suggest that deciding that in the middle of feeling frustrated is not likely to result in a good yes or a good no. So in other words, sit with it. We talk about being in the reactionary period. If you are currently agitated, don't write back yet. and Don't make (laughs) a big decision. Like wait until you are no longer frustrated and have just a little bit of distance. And sometimes that means... I'll need to get back to you about this tomorrow or in a couple of days or never, (laughs) never, (laughs) so that you can make a good decision. In a business context, I always, what I try to do is try to figure out like my own functions that I'm trying to optimize for and then telegraph those to the other side, because that could potentially broaden the aperture of what we could like for this particular thing. It might be a eight out of 10 and for the other side, it might be a two out of 10 Whereas like for price, it might each be uh, eight out of 10 for both of us or something. And so the problem though, that I've run into is that the other side doesn't always believe me when I telegraph the optimization function to them, because people tend to guard these things so closely that when the other side actually tells you it, they may not believe you're honest with them. How do I get them to actually show them, no, this is true. This is my optimization. These are the things that I'm optimizing for. And now that I gave it to you, I would love to get your optimization back so we can find the best deal for both of us. What you're talking about is what are the priority in negotiation speak? What are the priority of my interests? What do I care most about? And what doesn't cost me that much or isn't as important in this particular deal? And I think that you're right that the traditional conventional wisdom is to hold your cards close to your chest. So the other person is like, well, I don't want to show you my cards and what's important to me. But it's like hopping in a cab and the person's like, where do you want to go? And it's like, I'm not telling you. (laughs) (laughs) Like You're just going to have to figure it out. So you're asking a couple of questions, I think. One is, how do I get them to trust that I'm actually being straight with them about the priority of my interests and what would optimize those? Which options for how we could do this deal would optimize my priorities. And part of that is just being consistent. Probably as you think about it, there are other things that are going to come up that you're like, oh, actually that didn't come up earlier, but that actually is important to us. And they need to know that that's not you going back on something or like you didn't have a hidden agenda. So I would just be particularly open about, actually, I'm really glad that you raised that because we didn't think to talk about it before. So let me say a little bit about why this is important to us in the following ways. The other side of the question is, how do I get them to show me their cards? And I think that they may just reflexively be holding them close to the chest. It could be that they're waiting to decide whether to take the risk to show what they care more about and less about. But one way to flesh it out is just to start to put different options on the table, give them more than one choice. Would it be better for you guys if we structure it this way or this way? And because you're putting two things in front of them that optimize different aspects of it, their reaction is going to tell you what they care more and less about. So just put different options in front of them and pay attention to the reaction. Like, would you rather me pay you for a year up front or would you rather me pay you 10% more, but over 12 months or something? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And that's probably paired with something else. If you guys pay up front, we can do the following. But if you are willing to 
wait, we could do it this way and you get 10% more. That's going to tell me something on two fronts about the combination that matters to them. So it's not even that you're testing single terms. You might be testing a couple of different bundles of terms, and then you're starting to flesh out the different things that matter. They may not even know, actually, because they haven't had the hard conversation with themselves about what they're willing to give up and what's more important to them. And plus that also might mean there might be multiple decision makers in a business context, right? Oh multiple gosh. decision makers, yes. and they may not have synced with all of them or put all the things on the table, especially in a complex negotiation. Totally. I'm really glad that you said that because part of the lack of clarity for them at the table may be that they're managing a coalition, which is not coalesced, behind the table of different players within their organization who don't agree or different investors who don't agree. And they're actually negotiating behind the table. And so a lot of what I'm thinking about is who is knocking on their door that they have to satisfy and how do I equip them to explain why this deal makes sense for each of those different constituents. And how does that do? Because that happens a lot in a sales context where we sell data at SafeGraph. We find someone who's our champion. They want to buy our data. They're very, very excited, but they've got to navigate budget constraints. They've got to navigate getting that data into the system. So there's like resources that they need. There's priorities. There's other things internally. And we're kind of trying to arm them to be able to negotiate internally in some ways, like we're aligned with them more, but how does that work in negotiation? Yeah, they're almost on your side of the table. Well, what do you do now to arm them? Because I bet you're doing a bunch of things and then I can add maybe a couple of other ideas. Well, one is trying to understand like, because we're usually very good at handling all the different objections or just explaining things about our business because we know our business, whereas like this potential person who wants to buy our product, he or she might know the internal politics much better than us. But And so what we need to do is arm that person with the right information maybe to help them. We won't be able to help them with the emotions of it, but we can at least help them with the facts that actually people might think this takes four months to implement, but our average implementation time is actually only 13 days or whatever it is. And then you help them with this. And then actually we've also implemented with four companies that look just like yours. And they actually were able to implement in six days and because they had these systems already in place. And if so, if you have something similar or whatever, so helping them with that has been what we tried to do, but it's difficult because we might not know the whole story. They might not know the whole story. They might know the story, but not willing to tell us because it might show the warts of their organization, which they might not want us to know, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> you may decide maybe we don't want to do business with this person. <laughs> totally. I think that's exactly the direction I would go in. I might even just ask, so you have to turn around and have a bunch of conversations internally, I imagine, I assume. What are the skeptics inside your own organization going to say? What are they going to wonder about? And sometimes we even go as far as to put together a super short deck of just like three or four slides, like, what is it? Why does it matter? And then the third and most important slide is, yeah, but dot, 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 and I asked them, like, what's going to be on this slide? What are people going to be like, okay, yeah, this sounds great, but, and then we're lining up bullet points, but how long does it take for us to get the data? But this is a huge investment. How are we going to know whether it's going to pay off? Yeah, but aren't all our competitors already doing something in a different direction? Whatever it is, what together they put on that slide for us to talk about, yeah, but I don't really understand how this works. Those are the key things that now I need to equip you to answer those questions. Or I can join the conversation. I'm happy to hop on with your stakeholders and just field questions about it and then leave so that you guys can talk about it. One of the things you advocate for in these difficult conversations is coming from like a neutral perspective and focusing on something that's objectively true to both parties. And you call this the third story. What are some best practices to getting to a shared third story? Yeah. So this circles back to that idea that when I initiate a conversation, I will tend to start from inside my own story about what's going on. And inside my own story, I'm the hero and you're the problem, Yeah, obviously, as I am in everyone's story, I'm sure. 
So if I start the conversation within my own story, the role, the invitation to you to have that conversation is not going to be appealing to you. Like, hey, we need to talk about the fact that you pulled the rug out from under us on this process that's totally illegitimate and that's not how you treat a partner. That's not a conversation that is likely to go anywhere productive. And there's a bunch of data that suggests that the first three minutes or so of a negotiation is highly predictive of the outcome. It's not going to be better if I try to start the conversation from inside your story, because that doesn't feel good to me. Let's talk about the fact that you need everything to line up and all these contracts to be uniform. And I'm just too naive to understand that (laughs) or whatever, or what did you expect? So the third story is a way to capture the issues or the topics the way that a neutral observer might. So you're just being descriptive. Yeah, so if there was like, it happened to be a mediator in the room, exactly. what would they be asking? What would they be asking? Or okay. How would they be framing the purpose of this conversation? And they would frame the purpose of the conversation as, let's talk about why we're here, why we are in this tough moment or what has gone wrong so that we can understand it and then explore whether there are solutions. So mm-hmm. I don't need the mediator there. I can do that myself. So I can say, hey, Or let's just talk about the process here, because I think that I was assuming a different process than we're currently in, which I'm finding confusing. You may not have thought that it was unclear, because this is what you do every day, but I just want to understand where we are and how we got here, and then think about whether there's better ways for us to handle this going forward. So that is basically saying to you, we're going to sit down. Your perspective is going to be part of this conversation. My perspective is also going to be part of this conversation. We're going to figure out why they're so different or why we're frustrated with each other. And then we'll see what makes sense going forward. And that's an invitation. It's a neutral description of the difference. And it's affirming that both sides' perspectives are part of this conversation. That's a little different from like the Stephen Covey recommendation is to kind of like hear out the other party and make sure that they are heard. So he kind of recommends like sitting down with them and actually getting a notepad and actually writing down and summarizing everything they say and then reading it back to them so that they know that you've heard them. And then once they feel like you've sufficiently heard their side, then say, okay, now I've heard your side. Do you mind listening to my side with the same intent? But that does seem a little bit different from what you suggested. I would say that he is describing a subset of what I'm describing. Meaning that will be part of, I mean, whether or not you formally need to write it down or read it back, but meaning me really listening, asking questions and letting you know that I'm understanding where you're coming from is probably the next thing that happens after the third story. But I'm signaling up front that that's not the end of the conversation that, okay, so that I, there are a couple of new things I hadn't appreciated. Let me just share now sort of what we assumed and expected. I actually, in the conversation we're talking about, I did say to the other side, look, if I were advising the me of two months ago about how to approach this, I would have priced this much higher just to give us some more room to move. But I priced it the way that I think it should be priced. And we don't tend to negotiate our rates. So now we're at a standstill because you're paid to get my rates down. And so I'm putting you in kind of a bind. But Oren, let's talk about something that is responsive to the Covey thing that I think that I didn't really appreciate until a few years ago which is we talk about two axes, the empathy axis and the assertion axis. So how high empathy am I being in this conversation and how clear or skilled am I in asserting my perspective? And I actually think that each of us tends to be stronger on one than the other. Do you have a sense of which one you're stronger on? I'm generally a lower EQ person. (laughs) And so... (laughs) I have a very tough time like reading (laughs) faces, for instance. So that's my deficiency. How would you advise low EQ people to best engage in difficult conversations? So I love that description because it tracks what a lot of us probably have, which is we're probably stronger on assertion than on empathy. And there can be many different reasons. Like you're describing a reason that says like, I have trouble reading people's faces, et cetera. Another reason that I might be higher assertion is that in school, what we're taught is how to make an argument. 
and how and to be right write clearly and be right yeah. on the facts and answer correctly. So many people, either by constitutionally or by training, are higher assertion than empathy. However, there are also people in the world whose natural place is empathy. And so they're the people that everybody confides in. And they're the people who will naturally have an instinct to come into the conversation with you and say like, Orin, I really just need to understand your perspective here and help me get what I'm not getting. And then you'll have a very robust conversation and they'll read it back to you, just like Stephen Covey did. And they'll actually be persuaded by the legitimacy of what you are saying. And then they'll walk away and later they'll think, well, shoot, I forgot to say that I don't agree with that. I have a different perspective. And you thought it was a complete conversation. (laughs) And I, if I'm an empathy person, might have thought at the moment it was a complete conversation. But if we're in a long-term relationship, that's a pattern that's going to repeat itself over and over and over again. So a couple of things. The third story reminds both of us that actually at the end of your assertion part, that's not the end of the conversation. So it reminds both of us to say, well, so, okay, what doesn't make sense about that from your point of view? So that we actually draw out the empathy person. That journey back from, I now understand you, I have to figure out how to integrate what you've said into what I think is actually complicated sometimes of like, okay, so what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Although it's still true that there are things left out of that and it still doesn't feel fair to me. So I'm figuring out what I think. So if you're a high assertion person, like you're saying, and you need to work on the empathy side, part of it is paying attention to, well, so I've explained myself now, but I still don't understand why everybody doesn't agree with me. (laughs) (laughs) And So just remembering, oh, so what do you think I'm missing? What do you think my view is missing? Or what's your reaction to that? And I think we often will end our own explanations by saying, so does that make sense? And that basically says like, it should. The right answer here is yes, or and that makes all often the sense in the all world. The time, like, does that make sense? Does That's that a, make probably sense? a terrible thing to say, yes. So one thing you can just say instead is flip it to say, so what feels like it's missing from that? Or somebody tell me what we're missing here. Because I'm sure there are things that are missing. There always are. Or so what's your reaction to that? So that's a feelings question or it's an open invitation to either feelings or reactions because they might not know what they think of it yet, but they're having some reaction. So if you just tweak the end to invite the journey back to their perspective, you don't necessarily have to read the face to intellectually know there's more here to be discussed. Interesting. I have trouble reading faces or body language and stuff like that. But if someone tells me their feelings, then okay, I can get it. And so you need to probably invite and give them permission, especially by the way, in hierarchy, because in hierarchy, people are going to be less direct and more risk averse. And so saying, sometimes we'll even say like, what's in your internal voice? I can't tell. <laughs> and you've been pretty quiet. So help me understand okay, I like that. what you're thinking about right now. You probably see obstacles that I don't. You mentioned these mediators and for usually once you get to a mediator, it's like the thing has progressed in a way, in a very negative way. And you like feel like you need to bring in a mediator. But the few times that either I've used a mediator early or in some cases I was the mediator, it actually worked out really, really well. Is there a sense like we could bring in mediators like a little bit earlier than we do or? Oh, yeah. The early stage mediators are usually called facilitators, but they're actually okay, yes, that's what I mean. A facilitator. a facilitator who can make sure to remember that like we've got voices in the room who have not said much. Do you want to say what your reaction to that is, et cetera? So part of what we're putting that person, whether it's a mediator or a facilitator in charge of, is process. Like can you end monitoring relationships? as we explore substance. And the facilitator or mediator doesn't particularly have a view about the substance, but they're helping protect the relationship and helping set a process so that we can focus on the substance. Sometimes when people say, I think we need a mediator, what they actually mean is we need an arbitrator. And I am pretty sure that that person is going to agree with me. That's why I think we need an arbitrator. So really, we're talking about a facilitator to have a better conversation. Yeah. And so sometimes 
I'll be asked to come in and mediate something. And what becomes pretty clear pretty quick is that at least one side, if not both sides, expects that I will render a verdict for who's right. And that's really putting me in charge of something different, which that's like arbitration or something. Arbitration is a legitimate process, but it may or may not be what anybody bargained for. So we need to get clear on what my role is here. Especially when you have more than two people having some sort of facilitator, even if you think like a dinner party at your house, like if a facilitated dinner party where you have a moderator, like kind of guiding the conversation and having one conversation is just way more fun and more interesting than everyone just kind of like talking to their neighbor or something. Yeah. And where people's natural tendency to interrupt or to dominate the conversation or to et cetera, will just play itself out the same way it did at our last dinner party. So a facilitator can really disrupt the natural patterns in a way that's much more interesting and fun. And they don't even have to be a formal facilitator as much as just be given the role. Like, hey, can you think through what would make this fun or put out questions for people to answer, whatever it would be. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this probably want also on like, what are the best practices of having difficult conversations with one's like spouse or partner or something like that? Because I mentioned those are very different than a friend or very different than a business context or something? Well, that's a great question. I don't tend to think about them as different. Okay, great. So when we do work inside corporations, organizations in a professional context, I'll often say to people, look, as we work on examples, I don't care whether you bring examples from work, colleagues, bosses, whatever, clients, investors, stakeholders, or you bring them from home, your teenager, your spouse, your whatever, because the structure will be the same. The skills will be totally the same. The identity issues are going to be there no matter what context we're in. And the skills are totally transferable one to the other. Maybe the only thing that is different about a spouse or partner, if you've made what you both believe is a lifelong commitment, is that you're maybe not waving around your BATNA as much. My alternative, like, (laughs) you know, if we don't agree about this, I can always, (laughs) so-and-so's looking pretty good. That's probably not going to help. That would probably be a bad idea. (laughs) That's a bad idea. Whereas like, if you're in a negotiation, let's say, to get your company funded by a venture capital firm, they would know, okay, well, look, I've got another venture capital firm that is willing to give- We're having conversations with a couple of different people. And that- is actually a totally legitimate assumption about process and relationship in that context, which is probably not feeling legitimate in in the long-term partner context. That's interesting. There's this common belief that we're in a very polarized time right now. And do you think that just in general, that makes society, like everybody in society, less willing to compromise, less willing to hear the other people, just not necessarily like red, blue, but just in life, does that permeate all the way down to your personal relationships, your business relationships? And so does that mean it's even like harder today to have difficult conversations than it was 30 years ago? Certainly the public discourse feels different. And I think it's because all of the platforms are basically platforms for assertion. They're not platforms for listening or empathy or dialogue. They're all serial monologue. Also, what gets attention and likes tends to be overstatement and simplification and emotion. I mean, this was true in the newspaper business 30 years ago. Man bites dog or- Man bites dog. It bleeds, it leads. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And We've done workshops. My colleague, Doug Stone, has done workshops in South Africa in the 90s with journalists. And when journalists interview different parties to a conflict, they're going to quote the most colorful, interesting, and provocative quotes from that hour-long interview. And so now it shows up in the newspaper and it is showing the most polarized version of how to describe what's going on. So that's maybe good journalistic writing for getting people to read your article and getting a good headline on it, but it's actually not going to help the underlying conflict. Because now I'm reading that my counterpart said something pretty inflammatory that I'm now reacting to. And I think that social media has just exacerbated that phenomenon. And it's also 
speaking of dinner parties or Thanksgiving, you've also invited the most bombastic uncle you've got into your living room every (laughs) single day because he's shouting something on social media about something that you care about. And so it has introduced an agitation, I think, and a reactivity into public discourse in a way that means that we tend to see each other when we know we disagree about something important. It's easiest to caricature the other side. Well, I know what you think, and I'm going to attach all the things that people on your side say that are so problematic. And so I actually have to engage the other person. If I want to have a real conversation, I have to negotiate with myself to not attach all of that to what I assume their view is and be curious about why they hold it or what they disagree or disagree with that other people on their side agree or disagree with. And their side just could be political. It could be anything, as you say. Now, how do you get organizations to be better at giving feedback? I found that people, at least who joined Safegraph, are really good at getting feedback. That's probably how they got to in their life. They've just been very good at taking feedback and considering it and acting upon the feedback, Let's say, whether it's a coach or their parent or a teacher or something over the years. But giving feedback is in some ways, much more risky because, well, who am I to give this feedback to my boss or my colleague or something like that? And it's just awkward to give someone feedback. How do you build an organization that's good at giving feedback? Oh, it's such an important question. So there's this funny paradox, which is that I think if you want to have a richer feedback culture, The key is not actually teaching and encouraging people to give feedback, which is what we all assumed it was, including me. I actually think it's helping the senior leadership get just as good at receiving, eliciting and receiving feedback to role model a set of expectations for how we will work together, which is that all of these feedback conversations are going to be two-way conversations. Like I have some things that I actually think and need you to do differently, but I'm guessing the reason you're doing them the way you're doing them now has something to do with me sometimes. Or what do you think I could do that would make your job easier? I may or may not be able to do it, but just knowing would be helpful. Also, I'll quibble a little bit with your characterization. I think you're totally right that the people you hire in historically have probably been pretty good at integrating feedback. They're highly educated. They're super smart. They're moving up fast. Often what they're getting is evaluative feedback, grades, ratings, stars, whatever. And they have really, really important strengths and they're playing to their strengths. So one of the courses that I teach is the negotiation mastery course. And so working with super experienced negotiators. And one of the things that's an interesting phenomenon is that experienced negotiators their repertoire for how to handle things does not tend to be very broad, but it's super deep. They've developed a few skills and a few approaches that are really successful for them. And they're really good at it. And they lean on that more and more and more. And this is true of leaders as well. And then they bump into situations where that approach is not working. And then they just feel like, well, this is just impossible. And the other person's impossible because they can't imagine any other way to approach it. And all of our strengths are a double-edged sword. They also have downsides. So for instance, I think I'm somebody who can be, I'm not naturally, but in particular roles, I can be pretty extroverted and put people at ease. And that's a big plus at the negotiation table or in a team. But that also means that I can sometimes dominate the conversation in a way that I don't mean to. And if I'm having trouble, if I'm hearing through the grapevine that somebody's not happy with something, I'm not leaving them space. I'm not finding ways to invite them into the conversation because my strength of being extroverted and forward-looking and task-oriented is not helping to solve the problem of people not saying what they're worried about or what they disagree with in the moment. So I'm guessing that even the people who are coming in who are really good at what they do will have things that need coaching over time, especially as you move up in an organization. The shadow side of your strengths has a bigger and bigger impact on everybody, and fewer and fewer people are willing to take the risk to tell you about it. And that's why the fastest way to change a feedback culture is for the people at the top in leadership positions to be super open and ask for coaching, not evaluation. How am I doing? 
you're doing awesome, of course. But hey, what's one thing that if I changed it would make a difference? Or what's one thing where I'm getting in my own way? That question often elicits really useful answers. I've got a dog here who's... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hello. (laughs) What's stuff? Yeah. He's giving me some feedback about what we should be doing right now. (laughs) One of the things I find on the feedback side is... It kind of depends on how confident you are in your ability in that thing. So as a CEO, I'm very, very confident. And if it's anything to do with data or math or probability, I'm very confident. So I'm willing to accept a lot of different types of critical feedback. I'm a bit of an uncoordinated person. So if it comes to like physical activities like athletics, okay, I'm I'm a lot less confident in myself. In that case, I've really benefited when I've had coaches from like specific positive feedback. Like they might watch me a hundred times hit a tennis ball. And one time by accident, I hit it like perfectly. And then they're like, (laughs) hey, let's go to the net and let me describe. You put your hips into it. You fall. Did you see how you fall through? I, I may have not understood any of those things, but the fact that I could do it once certainly meant I could do it again. And they're kind of pointing out like the good things I did rather than the classic coaching, which is, hey, drop your hips a little bit, put your arm into it, fall through the other side of it. I, I'm so, so appreciating this particularly because I'm not a good tennis player either. So you're hitting upon something that I think is so important, which is we learned this actually from colleagues of ours, Alan Sharp, John Richardson, and Roger Fisher, that actually there are three kinds of feedback. And people, we each need all three in order to learn and grow. And the easy way to remember them is ACE, A-C-E. And the first is appreciation, which is what you're describing. And appreciation just says like, I see you, I get you. Hey, that thing that you just did, even though it was by accident, that's exactly what you should be continuing to do. And appreciation is often in short supply in organizations. And it has a huge impact on being a hedge against burnout, on employee engagement, all the blood, sweat, and tears I'm putting into this job, like, does it matter to anybody? And so really focusing on genuine, specific appreciation day in and day out, like that thing with your hips and the swing, not just, hey, that was great. It's not just telling, like, I tell my wife all the time, I love her, but it's like, I should say, you did this thing and it was like amazing and it was really helpful to the family or something like that. I'm not just saying like in general, like, oh, I love you. You're great or something. Yeah, because it has to be genuine and sincere. And the more specific it is, the more credibility it has in terms of being genuine. Hey, by the way, thanks for making dinner. I know it was a long day and I appreciate it. It doesn't even have to be over the top. It's just like an acknowledgement. Like I see, I noticed, and it mattered to me. The thing that we tend to focus on is the C, which is coaching. Like, what do I need you to change? And coaching is the engine for learning and improvement, but it really needs to be paired with appreciation for me to hear it. Like, really, the first thing you have to say to me in six months is something you want me to change? Are you noticing (laughs) all the other things I'm doing well? So a shortage of appreciation can get in the way of my willingness to take the coaching. And then the last one is evaluation. It rates or ranks you based on expectations or et cetera. Here's how you're doing. And that's like how five-star rating, et cetera. And that's actually the easiest kind of feedback to give and collect. And it's actually the hardest to understand (laughs) or to get anything useful out of, okay, I'm doing a great job. Anything more specific? Or I'm not doing a great job, but you're not telling me what I need to change. For that, I need the coaching. And also the evaluation, you're usually unless you're at Bridgewater, not evaluating someone like every day, it's like maybe twice a year maximum or something. It's not that timely. And you're raising something important about Bridgewater and about systems that are constantly evaluating. Some people will thrive in that system, particularly if they're high on the hierarchy and they feel safe, meaning a low rating today on one thing won't matter. But if you're lower in the hierarchy or feel more at risk, or just constitutionally different, which I think is actually most people, feeling constantly judged and evaluated is not actually giving you the space emotionally to be curious. In order to really be curious about coaching and what I could change and being willing to take the risk to change, I need to actually feel like I have some room to make mistakes and not do it as well the first few times. And for somebody to notice that I am actually trying to get better at it. And so for many people, 
constant evaluation actually hurts their ability to learn and grow. Not for everybody. And that's why some people really like the constant evaluation system. I think (laughs) marriage or a long-term commitment is this funny way in which, okay, we're not going to evaluate every day whether we're going to stay in this relationship. We're going to set that aside for a little while. And that'll give us like more room and comfort and safety and security to actually be ourselves and learn and grow. And we each privately, secretly, or maybe explicitly once a year can decide. So how's this going? What do we want to change? Let's evaluate. So evaluation, you actually need just every once in a while in organizations also, but appreciation and coaching actually should be part of our daily work together and collaboration together. In a remote first world where communication happens over video or it's happening async, email, Slack, et cetera, what are some of the better practices to have productive conversations? I'm guessing your experience is similar to mine and I think lines up with the research, which is that virtual teams working asynchronously in particular have more conflict. Is that your experience? My experience is the opposite. Oh, say more. My experience has been that it eliminates most of the office politics, that it gets people aligned on their tasks more, but that it's harder to build like high trust environments because often you build high trust environments by the side conversations, learning about someone's family, et cetera. So that if you really want to give someone hard feedback, you may have not put enough in the bank yet to give them that feedback. So that's really interesting because I think I agree with you. I have not thought about it this way before, but there's a way in which the virtual space forces us to be much more explicit about tasks to be done, responsibility for who's going to push it forward, what did we deliver, et cetera, in a way that can smooth out the process and the timelines for what we're each doing. Am I tracking what you were describing so far? Yes. And then when it comes to maybe either we have a conflict on the team, we don't agree, or somebody needs to give somebody else some feedback, et cetera, that's where it gets more fraught. And partly because we maybe don't have the foundation in the relationship. Also because not everybody adheres to the rule of no reactionary replies on email so that things can escalate when there is a conflict or a disagreement. Things can escalate on email if people are not stepping back and waiting to think about how they want to respond to something and to respond with as much empathy as assertiveness. There's a difference between saying, here's what you're wrong about and advocating what I think should happen here to the whole group. So now you also have an audience for the conflict, which raises the stakes identity-wise for somebody getting thwacked. And there's a difference between saying, here's why you're wrong and this is what we should do. And you probably don't want to have an argument over Slack or like within a Google doc or something like that. or Versus saying, Okay, I'm really glad you brought that up because I hadn't thought of that. So you're expressing some appreciation and what you're learning along with, here's what I think is left out. And there's a stance that my colleagues, Francesca Gino at Harvard Business School and Julia Minson at the Kennedy School, their research is on conversational receptiveness. And if you want other people to be receptive to what you have to say, you need to demonstrate that you are receptive to what they have to say, and are seriously considering it. Seems reasonable. That seems reasonable. So if you can consistently do that on Slack and email with each other, that will help you work your way through conflicts or disagreements or sometimes feedback because it's two-way. I'm receptive to what you think I could change also in our collaboration. But it's super, super important once it becomes a virtual environment and harder to do. One of the things I've seen a lot of startups do is one of their core cultural values is often to like assume positive intent. But I found it's like very hard to teach that. And I think one of the reasons that these startups are successful at assuming positive intent is that they just only hire people who are good at it. And if they by accident hire someone who's bad at it, they just get rid of the person. So they don't necessarily teach people. They just kind of attract the people that are more likely to assume positive intent in that culture. I think that's a fair description. And I also tend to assume probably positive intent because most people are trying to do something positive, even though it had a negative impact or no intent. 
Like they just weren't thinking about it when they didn't include me. So I could assume either no intent or positive intent. Oh, right, right. They didn't invite me to the meeting. I shouldn't assume that it was negative or something. Yes, right. yes. I shouldn't so assume they're trying to exclude it. me. Just somehow I was not on the list. Yes. Again. And now I start to, <laughs> to doubt. I start to doubt the lack of intention. So that's the thing, which is that as relationships have friction, we're more and more likely to question whether they had positive intent. And so what we tend to say is actually, you should assume you don't know their intention for sure. And that they probably had either no intention or positive intention, but you don't have to decide that. Instead, just focus on the impact. Like, hey, I got left off again. I'm finding this frustrating. Can you help me understand what's going on or how we can ensure that I am invited? Or is there a reason that I wasn't invited? Because if there is, that's important for me to understand. The other thing that when it comes to talking about race, and this is part of conversations about race going on, I think there's some quite legitimate frustration with the idea of assume positive intent. Because once I explain my positive intent, I can use it to sort of sanitize or erase or white out the impact that it had. Like, oh, no, no, no. I understand that you thought that was an offensive thing to say, but I was just trying to make people comfortable. So so now you should not be upset about it. And there was no problem with it. So we tend to say, like, actually, you could have positive intention and you still have to take responsibility for a negative impact and really hear that and not use it to erase it or dismiss it, because the impact is actually the thing that is the problem that we're talking about. Interesting. All right, a couple of personal questions before we go. I know you grew up in Iowa, Nebraska, which is kind of like the classic Midwest. And there's this stereotype of people who live in Midwest that they're much nicer than people on the coast. They are. And okay, well, (laughs) if that's the case, you would think like that would be better for people in your job. Do you think like your types of jobs would be more overrepresented by like Midwestern personalities? I just got back a couple days ago from spending a week in Nebraska with my family. And this is a very timely question. I do think actually in conflict resolution, there's an overrepresentation of the people I know of Midwesterners. And I also think that it is reflective of the fact that in certain areas of the country in the US and of course globally, the norms about public directness or indirectness and politeness are such that they're more friendly and more polite in many situations, but that doesn't mean that we're not frustrated with each other. And so you're trying to understand what's going on is just less direct. I also think that Midwesterners and people in small towns, and this is sometimes part of island culture. I've done a bunch of work in Hawaii, which is like, we're stuck together here, so we better get along. So there's more awareness of not burning bridges. And so people are more careful and thoughtful about which conflicts they're really going to engage. I think that's part of the social norms also. Interesting. All right. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I think that a lot of the conversation about like having the courage to have the conversation and speaking up for yourself, et cetera, focuses on just have the courage and do it. Take the risk, say what you need to say. And it misses two things. One is say what you need to say, but you need to say it in a way that it can be heard. I think it encourages people to hold back until they're ready to blast the other person to explain why they're right. And so then it under appreciates. And once you share why you think you're right or what you've been holding back and what you've been frustrated about, you better be in listening mode for the reaction because that's not the end of the conversation. It encourages us to lie awake at night and get up and write down all of our talking points for the conversation. Yeah, and just go to battle. Like I'm and ready then for go battle. To battle. Like I come in loaded for bear and I've got my talking points and that's going to lead me to do a lot of because talking. Because your friends got you all psyched up. Like you got to totally. go punch that guy in the face. That's right. That's right. That's right. And they're going to say like, well, did you punch him? So I think the focus on talking points can get us in trouble because we should be also thinking about, well, what questions do I want to ask? If I want to better understand how could they possibly see this differently or what did they think was going on? So I need to also have the questions to ask, and that will help me have the balance between empathy and assertiveness that is going to be more likely to result in a good conversation. All right. This has been awesome. Sheila Heen, this has been amazing. You're not active on Twitter. So what's the best place for people to find you on the internet? So I am on LinkedIn. 
And also on YouTube, there are a whole bunch of talks oh, okay. that I've given that like you can find that content. And then our website, triadconsultinggroup.com has resources, help yourself resources. For and just people. a reminder to the audience, I love the book, Difficult Conversations. I also really like the book. Thanks for the feedback as well. So I encourage everyone to get those books and read it. One of the nice things about Difficult Conversations, by the way, is the audio book. Is one of the few times where I think the audiobook actually might be better than the written book because there's actually a conversation that's going on in the audiobook and you can kind of hear the conversation. So I actually recommend people for difficult conversations to take the audiobook, not just read the book. And we do read the audiobook, actually. Yeah, it's you guys. Yeah. It's us. Yeah. And we do do the dialogues. So you can kind of hear the tenor of it. By the way, I have it in my hand. Oh. The manuscript for the third edition, which is going oh, to be out next year. Oh my gosh. Okay. This is really exciting. Okay. I'm working on the draft. I encourage the audience to still buy the current edition. Don't wait for the Don't third wait edition. For third edition. The third edition is just adding a little bit more content along the way, and we'll re record the audio okay, just for you, perfect. Warren. Oh, okay. Awesome. <laughs> I will re listen when it comes out. Awesome. I listen to it every few years. I think it's just a great. Thank you for that. Thank you so much, Sheila, for joining us on World of Das. What a pleasure. It's great to be here, Orrin. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Orrin, that's A-U-R-E-N, Orrin, and we'd love to hear from you.